Have you ever been invited to an exclusive VIP event? Maybe it was to a black tie gala. Or maybe a, a colleague at work invited you to her invite-only Christmas party that she hosts every year. Maybe you were asked to be a special guest at a, at a wedding where the number of attendees was limited. Everyone likes being invited to something. You know how I know that? Because of how you react internally when you're not invited. And you're not invited to a, a, an event that you really wanted to attend. It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? When others are invited to something, something's fun or something special, but you weren't. Friends, I remember times where I've been bummed not to get an invitation to something that I would not have been able to attend anyway. Like I, I had some sort of calendar conflict already on my schedule, but doggone it, I at least wanted to be invited. Now, why is an invitation such a big deal? Well, I think it's the fact that an invitation signals that you're included, that the one making the invitations, the inviter, had you on his or her mind, that you're appreciated, that you're, that you're loved. Friends, what if I told you that one of the most common pictures in the Bible for the kingdom of God and for heaven itself is an invitation, invitation only party, a celebration of unparalleled joy hosted by God himself. And, and even better, what if I told you that the host has already sent you an invitation to that party? Friends, if being invited to your friend's Christmas party makes you feel loved, how ought you to feel that the creator of the universe included you on his guest list? What does this say about God? And what's more, what would it say about you if you turned that invitation down? Friends, believe it or not, our scripture today concerns this very RSVP. Your RSVP to the most important invitation you ever received. Turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, it's on page 827 in the Bible underneath your seats. Friends, if you didn't arrive to church with a Bible this morning, grab that Bible out of the rack, turn to page 827. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't happen to own a Bible, uh, well, friends, we'd love for you to just take it home as a gift from us, make it your Bible and read from it. Matthew 22. Friends, if this is your first time with us here at Redeeming Grace Church, welcome. Our, our church has been making its way through the Gospel of Matthew for the past four fall semesters. And this morning, we've arrived at the events on Tuesday in the very week that Jesus died on the cross outside Jerusalem. And the Gospel of Matthew uh, is, is Matthew's chronicles, if you will of King Jesus' life and ministry, but written with a theological purpose. Matthew aims to show us that this, this Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, God's long-promised Messiah, the very Son of God. He's the King who came for sinners to rescue and redeem them by His blood, through His death, by forgiving their sins and transforming their lives in accordance with His will. Matthew is especially concerned about how you and I respond to this king. It's not enough that we intellectually acknowledge Jesus. Matthew means for us to bow our hearts and our lives to his lordship, to bow our knee to God's reign through him. Last Sunday, we looked at the beginning of a, of a confrontation between Jesus and the chief priests and elders of Israel. It took place in the temple court courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem. As part of this conflict, Jesus gives a, a series of three parables about how serious of a matter it is to reject him. Last week, we looked at the first two stories, and this morning, we'll look at the third together. So let's read, starting in verse 1 of Matthew 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent 
other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, each week I try to give you a main idea of the, ser- of the scripture text that I pray will be the main idea of the sermon. So here is the main idea from Matthew 22, 1 to 14. God has invited you, yes, you, to his son's eternal wedding feast. You dare not turn down his invitation or insult such a gracious king. What an amazing revelation. What amazing news that is. God has invited you, yes, you, to his son's eternal wedding feast. Oh, friend, you dare not turn down his invitation or insult such a gracious king. Friends, I think in this story, it's kind of broken into two different parts. I'm not dividing it up exactly like the compilers of your English Standard Version in front of you did. I I think that the break is actually after verse 7. So in verses 1 to 7, we see kind of an implicit first warning. And then in verses 8 to 14, we see what's kind of very on its face, a, a second warning that Jesus gives. So I kind of structuring the sermon around these two warnings. Number one, the danger of rejecting God's invitation, verses one to seven. Number two, the danger of presuming upon God's grace. The danger of rejecting the invitation on the one hand, the danger of presuming upon his grace on the other. Friends, I pray that you will consider God's invitation this morning. This incredible, gracious invitation into eternal life has your name on it. But even more, I pray you'll consider what reply you've given or what reply you intend to give to the king's invitation. Number one, the danger of rejecting God's invitation. Friends, this this parable of the wedding feast is very much a continuation of Jesus' first two parables, the parable of the two sons and then the parable of the tenants. You ought not to draw a hard line in your mind between these first two, uh, those first two and this this last one. The only reason, friends, that we didn't look at all three parables last week was a lack of time, not some sort of thematic difference or disunity. No, Jesus is still very much indicting the religious leaders and the people of Israel for their high-handed rejection of him, their Messiah King who came to rescue and to redeem. In fact, remember that the parable of the tenants is all about that rejection. First, the tenants did what? Who did they reject? They rejected God's servants, which represent the prophets throughout Israel's history. And then finally, climactically, they rejected who? The son. God's beloved son, which represents Jesus himself. Well, in in this parable, the parable of the the wedding feast, the same servants and the same son make a reprise appearance. Only this time, Jesus pictures the kingdom of God as as a wedding feast that the king of a realm throws for his son, the groom. Look again at verse one. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Friends, I'm guessing that if you're new to the scripture, like this is the first time you've read this, you might be able to tell me who the figures represent in this story. It's not hard, is it? It's nearly allegorical. 
The king represents God the Father. The servants of the king represent God's servants, the the prophets and perhaps even the apostles of Jesus. Those invited represent the nation of Israel. And of course, the groom at the, the wedding feast represents the Lord Jesus Christ, the son who came to win his bride by dying for her. But what you quickly realize is that that Jesus is doing in this parable uh, the same thing he did in the last one. He's giving the religious leaders a synopsis of Israel's history in story form. So if you remember in in the parable of the tenants, Jesus employed the Old Testament idea of a vineyard. And in a similar way, Jesus in this parable pulls together actually two massive Old Testament ideas. And what he does is fuse them together into one to show us the love of God and his plan to redeem sinners like us. But before I give you this this Old Testament background, just just consider how Jesus frames the entire thing. He says that God's kingdom, God's reign that saves people from sin through faith in Christ, this reign of God is like a wedding feast. Now, friends, what images flood your mind when you hear those words? Wedding feast. What what comes to mind? People moping around? Pain and suffering? No, unless your wedding day really went sideways, I hope you're not thinking about that, right? What should come to your mind are images of undisguised love and joy and celebration. Because Jesus wants you to see the kingdom of God like this. Under his gracious reign, through Christ, is the greatest experience of love and joy imaginable because he's the source of it all. The religious leaders that Jesus was talking to that day would have understood the idea of salvation pictured as a feast. 700 years before Jesus came, God promised through Isaiah that the salvation the Messiah would bring would be like a lavish feast. We read of it this morning in our scripture reading. Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 25, 6, that when the Messiah King comes, the Lord will make a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. And this feast is not going to be for Israel only, but for all the peoples of the world. In fact, Isaiah says in that passage, if you look at it in your worship guide, he says that when this feast is celebrated, God is going to swallow up death forever. That horrible veil that's hovered over all the nations of the world since the fall will finally and forever be lifted. And God is going to wipe all tears away from our eyes. What Isaiah pictures is a complete and utter reversal of all the tragic results of humanity's rebellion against God. Friends, what a feast. That's a feast I want to participate in, don't you? Where the food and drink is literally eternal life in God's presence forever. Like I said, the religious leaders were expecting the Messiah to dine with his people. But it was not until this very moment there in the temple court, in this parable, that the idea of the Messianic feast became inseparably fused to another image of salvation, the image of a wedding. Ever since Mount Sinai, God pictured his covenant relationship with Israel as a marriage. God, the husband, had pursued Israel, his bride, and brought her to himself. He ransomed them from Egypt, not because of anything good in them, but simply because he loved them. And yet, despite his unmerited kindness, Israel spurned God's love throughout their history. They cheated on him repeatedly through their worship of false gods. They broke their vows time and time and time again. And yet despite temporary judgments upon them like exile outside the land, still God, the husband, pursued them. In Hosea 2, God promised that a day was coming in which his people would no longer whore after false gods like Baal, but would forever call God my husband. And that God would betroth his people to himself forever in faithful, steadfast love. Say, John, you got all that from this phrase, a wedding feast? Like, are are you sure all that biblical theological stuff is packed into this parable? Isn't it just a story? Well, here's the thing. 
Think about how eternal life, friends, is pictured later in the Scripture. Think about how it's pictured in the closing pages of the Bible. In Revelation 19, the Apostle John sees a vision of all those forgiven of their sins through the blood of the Lamb coming together for what? Coming together for what? A feast! And it's not just any old feast, it's a wedding feast. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb in which Jesus, the groom, welcomes his bride into eternal life. And so yes, Jesus in this parable is fusing together two massive images of salvation, the feast and the wedding into one single image. As it turns out, the messianic banquet is a wedding feast between God and his people through Christ. Now, back to the details of the story. In the parable, the king throws a wedding feast for his son, and he sends his servant to call all those who were invited to the feast. Notice, the servants didn't do the actual inviting, did they? The king had already sent out the invitations. The servants merely summoned the invited guests to come to the event. Friends, think for a moment what it must be like or what it would be like to be invited to spend time with your king. Kind of hard to imagine that in a democratic republic, isn't it? We don't have a king. We don't live under a monarch. And yet, I imagine if the the president of the United States invited you to the White House to attend a state dinner, to sit at his table, no matter if you like that president's politics or not, you'd count that invitation as a tremendous honor. You'd make sure to buy a fresh tux or an evening gown. You'd immediately make sure that that invitation, that event was scheduled on Google Calendar. You'd book your airline tickets to D.C. months in advance. Why? because the leader of the free world invited you to his event. Friends, we get a sense of the privilege that such an invitation signified by comparing the king with our president. But but what we lose in that comparison is the implied absolute authority. Because a royal invitation from a sovereign ruler is not a take-it-or-leave-it deal. It's as much a royal summons as it is an invitation. When the king calls, you come. And so the words at the end of verse 3 picture the ultimate slap in the king's face. But they would not come. God sent his servants, the prophets, to call his people to the king's feast. But the people ignored the invitation. It's possible that Jesus doesn't so have so much have in mind here the Old Testament prophets as he does more proximate servants like John the Baptist, maybe even the 12 disciples that Jesus had sent out earlier in his ministry to proclaim the good news in Israel that God's kingdom had arrived through Christ. Regardless, the point remains. God in his mercy sent his word to his people through his servants. He invited them to the feast and they refused to come. And here, friends, yet again, as we saw last week, we get a a picture of the long-suffering character of the Lord. This initial refusal, it's a high-handed affront to the king's dignity. And yet the king mercifully sent the same invitees a second call, didn't he? Look at verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. I mean, this time the king makes sure that the the guests on the list know exactly what they're being invited to. I mean, it's the the best of the best, man. It's the king's banquet. We're talking filet mignon. We're talking grass-fed beef. We're talking the best wine from the king's collection. You don't want to miss this. In the summer, one of our members, Cody Landefeld, offered me free tickets to a Diamondbacks game. In fact, I like two or three games, I think. Very kind of Cody. And you know what I asked him the first time he offered me those free tickets? Where are the seats? Even though he was graciously gifting me tickets, I still wanted to know the specifics of the gift he had offered. And the king here accommodates the ingratitude of those invited by telling them exactly what's going down. 
My oxen, my fat calves are slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the feast. And yet look at the response in verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Friends, I think it's possible that at this point in the story, Jesus begins to prophetically forecast the future. He very well may be picturing the apostles preaching of the gospel to the the people of Israel following his resurrection from the dead. It's possible. Even though some were converted and the Jerusalem church was established, by and large, Israel continued to treat God's servants with contempt. And notice how the invitees responded. Some despised the king's servants so much that they killed them. So friends, we know, don't we, that the, the many of the prophets and apostles were martyred for their witness to Christ from John the Baptist, Simon Peter, the Apostle Paul. People hate when their sin is exposed. Human beings naturally despise a message that calls them, calls them to repentance in light of the lordship of a crucified and resurrected Messiah. And so they lash out at God by lashing out at His messengers. Of course, this is the pattern of Israel's religious leaders whom Jesus spoke to on that very day. These very leaders had already begun to plot Jesus' death. And they would deliver him over to the Romans to be crucified later that week. And yet, notice, friends, that open hostility is not the only way to reject the king. Did you see that? It's not the only way to show contempt for Christ. On the other hand, some were simply apathetic, quietly dismissive, uncaring. Verse 5, some on the guest list paid no attention to the servant and went off to his farm or business. In other words, their contempt toward the king looked totally different from the others who killed his servants, but they still spurned his kindness nonetheless. Friends, I want to speak briefly this morning to those among us who aren't Christians and specifically to those who have been around the church a lot, whether this one or another one. Friends, you've been exposed to the gospel for as long as you can remember, but you've yet to start following Jesus by faith. Friends, if that's you, my guess is that you don't identify yourself as that first type of rejecter that I described. You're not openly hostile to the gospel. After all, you're here this morning in a, in a gathering of Christians who believe that this message, that this invitation is not only true, we believe it's the very power of God, the gospel is to save. You haven't caused a ruckus, right? You would never think to do that. You would never think to intentionally hurt other Christians. Even if your parents made you come or a friend invited you this morning, you're happy and fine to be here so long as you don't have to own Christianity for yourself. And yet, if that's you, friend, perhaps you need to consider that Jesus profiles two different types of rejectors to the king's invitation in this story. And what I want you to see is that both groups ultimately despise the king. Both are shown to be in contempt for his grace and his authority. No matter if they're loud and proud in their rejection and their sin, or if they're quiet and covert. Why? Because they both turn away from Jesus. Because of that RSVP of rejection, both groups deserve the king's judgment. Look how the king responds to those who RSVP to his invitation with, with both, I'm not interested, as well as I hate you. The penalty for such a response, as it turns out, is identical. Verse 7, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. The king's patience and mercy toward the contempt of those on the guest list is remarkable, but it is not unlimited. Eventually, the king's patience ran out, and his anger there was a just reckoning for those who killed his servants along for all those in the city. 
Friends, Jesus does not mean for us to see here a rash king responding with over-the-top severity, but a long-suffering sovereign who eventually has no other choice but to respond to rebellion against his reign with justice. By the way, the detail of the burning of the city may very well be Jesus' prophetic allusion to what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD. The The Jewish historian Josephus writes that in response to a Jewish uprising, the Roman emperor Titus, along with his forces, sacked Jerusalem. Not only burned the temple, he burned the city. God's judgment upon Israel for rejecting Jesus eventually fell. But surely Jesus doesn't have in mind here merely this type of temporal judgment like the one in 70 AD. Surely he means for us to see that a a permanent, an eternal recompense awaits all those who spurn God's grace, who, who fail to respond positively to his invitation to eternal life through Christ his Son. Friends, whether you're passive-aggressive or active-aggressive, whether you dismiss Christ nonchalantly because of certain intellectual or moral objections that you have, or whether you oppose Him in open defiance, it doesn't matter. Rejection is rejection. And friend, the day is coming when God's window of mercy that's open now will close if you continue on in that type of sin. Right now, because of God's staggering kindness to you, you are living in God's world. You are breathing His air. You are enjoying the benefits of His common grace to all humanity. But please, friend, do not mistake God's long-suffering with you as passivity toward your unbelief. You may be apathetic toward God, but He cannot be apathetic toward your sin. Every bit of it must be judged for God to remain good. God cannot be a good God if He's not a just God. Your sin will be judged one of two ways. It will either be laid on Christ by His atoning death in your place through faith in Him, or it will be laid on you for all eternity, through your refusal to turn from your pride and self-sufficiency and trust in Him alone to save you. Friends, the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that it's not too late right now to change your reply. It is not too late. Even this morning, even right in this very moment, you can change your mindset about God and His Word from rejection to acceptance. You can turn from proud refusal to trust in Christ to humble faith in Him alone to save. God is graciously beckoning you even this morning. Cast aside your idols and worship me alone through Christ. You can turn from your sin and embrace the one who lived and died and rose again to forgive you and secure you a spot at the table of His eternal feast. God loves you so much that he sent you an invitation with your name on it. How will you RSVP? The danger of rejecting God's invitation. Number two, the danger of presuming upon God's grace. See that in verses 8 to 14. So in the story, after bringing judgment down upon those who spurned his invitation, look at what the king does in verse 8. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready But those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with yes. Friends, here yet again in Matthew's gospel, we have a clear picture of the universality of the gospel message. It is an invitation of mercy and hope for all who would come. You know, part of the, the judgment upon the nation of Israel for her rejection of Jesus is that, that God refashioned who his special covenant people would be. No longer 
Would inclusion in the people of God be defined by ethnicity, but by attachment to Jesus through faith in him? Friends, let me just say this as as a bit of a theological aside. In both the parable of the tenants and in this one, we've seen Jesus signal this, this massive shift in redemptive history away from a bloodline defining God's covenant people to faith in Christ defining who God's covenant people are. But friends, just because the parables show God reacting against Israel's unbelief and and establishing his new people, you might be tempted to think that, you know, this multi-ethnic, multilingual people of God, the, the church, it's like God's plan B, right? It's God's backup plan that he hatched when Israel rejected the Messiah. But friends, it's just the opposite. God's plan A has always been to have a global people for himself, for the sake of his name, through the work of his chosen king. I want you to just just let these truths of the Old Testament, this kind of biblical theology, wash over you for a second, okay? So in Genesis 3.15, God promised that a coming son of a woman would crush the head of Satan, not for the good of one ethnic group, but for the good of all of Adam's race that fell into sin. God promised Father Abraham that through one of his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. God promised King David that that David's royal scion would reign with a global dominion from the river to the ends of the earth. As Psalm 72 says, the desert tribes and the kings of the nations will come and bow before the Messiah. Even in Isaiah 25, which we read earlier, It promises that God will set a feast. He'll remove the veil of death's shadow from over who? The peoples, plural. (laughs) The peoples, not singular. Daniel pictures the exalted Son of Man receiving the homage and the worship of all the nations of the world. Friends, what is utterly unique about Christianity? What is beautiful about the gospel of Jesus Christ? is that this is a message for all. I thought I might get an amen out of that one. I don't know. You're free to respond. All are invited. You can just sense that as Matthew records Jesus' parable here, his pen is bristling with evangelistic, missions-minded passion. Notice the first words of verse 9. Go, therefore... Go, therefore, go, therefore, to the main roads and invite as many as you can find. Friends, Matthew will pen those words one more time in his gospel. In Matthew 28, the resurrected Jesus gives marching orders to his disciples, to the church. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the resurrected king. Go, therefore and make disciples among all the nations. Beloved, the king is extending the invitation to all. He intends for us as his people to embody the role of his servants and extend his invitation to the feast without discrimination or distinction to all who would listen. Look at verse 10. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Friends, so gracious is this king so indiscriminate is his love that his servants are to invite greedy tax collectors like Matthew, like Zacchaeus. They're to invite demon-possessed women like Mary Magdalene, as well as the righteous like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. The gospel, this invitation to the king's feast, Friends, it cuts across the barriers that naturally divide humanity. Moral barriers, ethnic barriers, economic barriers, educational barriers, cultural, political. You get the picture. Friends, praise God. This message that Jesus died for sinners, that he rose in triumph over the grave, it's not a message for reserved for conservative suburbanites. Nor is it only for progressive urbanites. No, friends, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all need to be saved. Therefore, the invitation is extended to all. 
Christianity, by its very nature, cannot be boxed into one nationality or ethnicity or skin color or socioeconomic class or education level or political persuasion. The king extends his invitation so that Jews might repent and believe along with the Gentiles. It's for those with white skin and dark skin and every skin tone in between. It's just as much for single moms barely making it as it is for a wealthy upper crust family in every tax bracket in between. It's for those with PhDs after their name and those whose names are not even on a high school diploma and everybody in between. This invitation needs to be received by faith just as much by the every Sunday churchgoer as it does the LBGTQ activist or abortion activist and everyone in between. All must repent of their sin and believe the good news, the good news of Jesus to receive eternal life. Beloved, let me just say one thing that I love about what God has done here at Redeeming Grace Church is that he has assembled here a very diverse group of people and knitted us together as one. Have you noticed that? Look around this room and you will see people with little in common with each other except one massive thing. Faith in and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the bond that holds us together. What unites us is not our ethnicity or our skin color, our background, our preferences. Any natural human criteria is not what binds us. What unites us together is a supernatural criterion, the saving work of Jesus through faith in him. Friends, by God's grace, one of our church's strengths, as far as I can tell, one of our church's strengths is that we treat all who would follow King Jesus by faith, we treat them as if they belong. Because they do. They do belong here. And for those who attend our gatherings who aren't yet believers, I have never seen our church family treat them with anything less than warmth and respect and kindness. Let's praise God for that. Let's praise God for that. It is a work of His mercy. It's not something to boast in. But may this type of grace filled unity and gospel-fueled love only multiply in and through us in the days ahead. But church family, let me just ask you two questions in light of this, this picture of the universality of the king's invitation. Is there anything practical that you can do to help our church more compellingly display the unity and diversity that God's kingdom brings? Is there anything you can do to help our church more compellingly display the unity and diversity that God's kingdom brings? Is there any practical step that you can take to love more broadly or diversely? Any, any brothers and sisters on the fringes that you need to rope in? Any preferences that you have, that you hold, that while not sinful, need to die on the vine in order to serve this body more effectively? What can you do? What can you do to make Redeeming Grace Church sparkle with the grace of a diverse people unified in Christ? Second question. That one was focused in, internally. This one is externally. Is there any type of person to whom you refuse to extend God's gracious invitation? Is there any type of person whom you just say, here, I, here my Lord, send them, right? Send them to that person. I can't do it. Maybe it's someone who identifies as transgender. Maybe it's your ultra left wing or rabid right wing coworker. Just can't handle them. Somebody else needs to reach them. I'll pray for them. Not going to share the gospel. Maybe it's the lesbian couple next door. Maybe it's the, the Muslim Uber driver. Yes, I'll be a light for Christ. But just don't ask that of me. Beloved, to withhold the invitation from anyone is to forget your own unworthiness to have been invited in the first place. 
None of us sit at Christ's table because we deserve to be there, but because Christ made us worthy. I pray that our church and our own individual attitudes would anticipate Jesus' description of the feast on that day. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. I love that. The wedding hall was filled with guests, all types of them. And yet, the parable isn't quite done. Jesus has a bit more to say. Look at verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to them, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. In ancient Middle Eastern culture, the, the clothing expected at such a wedding feast wasn't was some sort of special type of garment, but just decent, clean, white clothes that normal people had available. It was a major social blunder and embarrassing to the host to show up at any wedding in your ordinary dirty work clothes, let alone the royal wedding of the king's son. In this case, this man had come to the wedding having given no thought to his relationship to the king. He had no intention to truly honor the king or his, or his son, the groom. He presumed upon the king's kindness by thinking he could show up however he wanted to. Somehow this man had, had managed to sneak past the porters right at the front entrance who were screening people to make sure they had the proper attire on. Maybe he, he snuck in the side entrance like a true wedding crasher, right? But when placed beside all the rest who were clothed appropriately, this guy stuck out like a sore thumb. And when the king saw him and pressed him on how he managed to get into the wedding without the right clothes on, the man couldn't answer him. His speechlessness betrayed his guilt. This man, friends, acted like he belonged when his apparel, the fruit of his life, indicated something entirely different. Friends, I think it's clear enough that what Jesus has in mind here by the wedding garment is, is a life that matches the invitation. A life that matches your confession of faith. It's, it's not just saying that you belong to Jesus, but actually belonging to Him by submitting to His Lordship. This is not a contrived, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps righteousness. No, it's a righteousness that flows from your heart because Jesus has transformed your life. Remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount back in the early part of Matthew? He just pounded this point home to us time and time again. Jesus is not after outward conformity to God's standard, but an inward heart orientation toward Him that then evidences itself in humility and love and good works. It's not just, friends, that we think here at Redeeming Grace Church that we believe that that your own righteousness, that your good works justifies you before God. No, it's impossible for sinners to justify themselves of their own sin. It's like trying to clean a black stain off your clothes with a dirty rag. It just doesn't work. Clearly what we need is a righteousness and a cleansing from outside ourselves. We need God to give us His righteousness and forgive us from our own unrighteousness. And praise God, that's what he does in Christ. We rely on Jesus Christ's life credited to us by faith. And we trust that on the cross, as we trust in Jesus, our sin was credited to him. He plunged our sin to the grave. He left it buried there. And then he rose up so that we might live as a new creation. But friends, the consistent message of the Scripture is that from the root of faith in Christ will always, always bloom the fruit of heart obedience to Jesus. From the root of faith will bloom the fruit of obedience. We don't just trust in Him to save. We bow to Him increasingly as our Lord. Friends, think about how the rest of the New Testament pictures Christian growth and maturity in terms of putting on clothes, just like this story, just like this parable. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and so on. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, clothe yourself, all of you, 
with humility toward one another. Clothe yourself. And of course, in Revelation 19, in the very passage that pictures the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of the age, it was granted to the bride to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is what? The righteous deeds of the saints. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to participate in the wedding feast, you dare not presume upon the kindness of the host by showing up however you want. Your invitation better be accompanied by preparation. Your life must evidence the work of God in you. Friends, this is why at Redeeming Grace Church, we believe that regenerate church membership is so important. We just don't want our church to be full of pretenders, of those who say they're Christ, but those whose lives tell a different story. Not only does that type of nominal Christianity dim a church's witness, carelessly including hypocrites among the visible people of God also gives them false assurance. And so as much as we can help it, we're not perfect. Our judgment is not flawless. But as much as we can help it, the reality of the local church should mirror the spiritual reality of the coming kingdom. The family of God in the church is for those whose lives bear witness just as much as their mouths do. For those who evidence continual repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Church is not merely for those who are baptized, but for those actually walking in newness of life. Friends, you know what shocks me about this story as we close? The king's punishment for those who insult him by presuming upon his grace, it's just as severe as those who reject the message to begin with. Both receive his judgment. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him, the one that didn't have the garment on, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, those who dishonor the king by presuming upon his grace should expect the exact opposite of the feast. They shouldn't expect the kingdom of light, but outer darkness apart from God. Not the feasting of joy, but the suffering of sadness and condemnation under God's justice. Why? What Jesus explains in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Wait, run that back for me. Is that really what it says? Talk about theological whiplash. I mean, given the parable, I, I'd expect the verse to go something like this. For many are called, but few are qualified. Many are invited but few actually feast. Instead, Jesus draws the comparison between the called, in this context, all those who receive the king's invitation, who hear the gospel message, and the chosen, those who actually belong at the feast, which obviously shifts this entire conversation from our response to God's sovereignty to his election. But friends, I could be wrong. I don't think Jesus intends for us to linger here and try to kind of untie this theological knot between divine sovereignty and human will. I think his point is super simple. He says that if you're among God's chosen people, your life will put God's election of you on display through a life of holiness and love. That's it. Those chosen by God live like they belong to Him. Friend, is that you? If you merely play the part, you may get what you're looking for in this life. Whether it's the praise of men or being recognized as super duper spiritual or whatever, you can live that best life now. But if 
By the King's amazing grace, you respond to his invitation with a heart full of increasing trust, increasing obedience. Your best life, friend, is yet to come. A day is coming when all the redeemed will sit and feast with the King who invited them and qualified them to feast with his Son. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Oh, friends, until that day, may our King find us making ourselves ready. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your unparalleled patience and kindness and grace that you would invite rebels against you like us to sit at your table, to partake of eternal life that our King, the Lord Jesus, has won for us. Oh, Father, we ask that we would respond to such grace with hearts that are aligned with yours. Oh, Lord, let us pursue holiness and love as a response to your mercy. Not to earn your kindness, but because of it. Because it's secured for us through the work of Christ. And Father, may we be busy about the work of inviting others of extending the royal invitation that the king had made to us, to all who would hear. Oh, Father, increase our evangelistic witness, we pray, even through this passage. And may we be found at the corners of the street, at the city gates, saying, come, the wedding feast is about to begin. Oh, Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.